and and sometimes not knowing what to say is the greatest gift that you can give hmm. someone. I don't know. I, I have to process. I have to I have to go away and process what you're saying. It's it's making me feel a whole bunch of things. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Hi, and welcome back to the Inspire Podcast. This is the second last episode of season two. Now, when I did season one, I took a summer break and in playing season two, I planned to do another summer break, but obviously COVID happened, the world changed, and I uh, was recording so many great conversations that I just couldn't stop. So there is a break coming. This is the second last episode. And then I'll shut it down until early 2021. And this, uh, it's been just a great year. Uh, I've so enjoyed my conversations uh, with guests like Renai uh, Morso, who I have on today. Uh, Renai is uh, joining me from Vancouver, BC. She's a writer, she's a theater director, she's an actor, she's a musician. She is um, someone who just brings incredible insight into storytelling and that's why I want to have her on she works with people many of whom have not been heard um, who have been you know victims of uh, our, our country's uh, often oppression of uh, First Nations people and she helps them find their voice tell their stories she doesn't do it for them as she points out but she helps equip them with the tools and structure that they need to do this. And so I brought her on because we know that leadership and storytelling are deeply intertwined. In fact, some of the podcasts, some of my most listened to episodes have tackled storytelling. We know that if you can tell stories that are authentic, genuine, and vulnerable, you will connect with those you want to lead and inspire. And so anytime I have the opportunity to learn from someone who is exceptional in this field, I jump at it. And Renai is such a person. So I know you're going to enjoy the conversation as much as I did. It's going to make you a better leader, a better storyteller, and uh, uh, create deeper connections. So enjoy the conversation. My guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is Renai Morisot, uh, who joins me from Vancouver. And Renai, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Bart. Much appreciated and honored. Uh, it, well, the, the honor is mine. I got to know you indirectly because you did some work with my team at the Humphrey Group in Vancouver about a year ago, and they were all wowed by your expertise, the depth of your uh, knowledge about storytelling and kind of a different perspective you brought to your work. And they said, you have to have Renai on the podcast. And storytelling, as you as you and I discussed in our previous call, is something near and dear to our hearts at the Humphrey Group and to mine. But we've always approached it from you know the corporate perspective, a very pragmatic, you know, here's how you do it. 
And when you and I spoke last time, you just brought so much of a broader lens and how you help people tell their stories. And that's why I want to have you on today to, to give more depth to your work for us so that we can understand why stories matter and how to tell them well. What led you to this work uh, in your life at this point in time? I worked for an organization called Mama Wichita in the late 80s. Uh, which was is, which is an indigenous uh, social service agency in Winnipeg. Mama Wichita translates from Ojibwe into the phrase, we all work together to help one another. In that time, I was hired to do program development for the indigenous youth team. And we were wanting, as an urban indigenous community, through the efforts of the Winnipeg School District in the north end of Winnipeg, to have a public school that emphasizes indigenous culture, language, and academics. I was um, on the team to sort of create a dialogue with teachers and parents and students about what this, this school would look like. And so that was when I came into contact with the work of Augusta Boel and using theater of the oppressed strategies mm-hmm. and, and uh, how to dramaturge stories. And it was at that time when the then Chief Phil Fontaine disclosed that his experience at the Fort Alexander Indian Residential School, where he was, um, you know, sexually and physically abused. And that was in 1990. And at that time, the media covered that, his story, and of course, Mm -hmm. it went national. So at this conference with teachers, parents, students, Phil Fontaine spoke about the history of the residential schools and his personal experience within it. And through that, it really informed the kind of work because I didn't grow up in residential school. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't have that experience. So for a lot of uh, First Nations people, and that was the first time that I actually was awakened to the fact that really there were children as young as four years old taken into these schools, you know, across Canada. So in, in wanting to understand what that was, that work, that uh, research, that, that my curiosity and what that was all about really informed the kind of work that I do today. So it's, it's fascinating you know, that, that um, the, the sharing, the story that Phil Fontaine shared obviously galvanized the country, but you as well, um, kind of opening, opening eyes to, you know, the horrors that we now are, you know, much more aware of, but it's still shocking, you know, when we learn more about the legacy of the residential schools. Mm-hmm. What was it? I mean, this, it cuts to the heart of stories, right? And their power to open your eyes, to change, to, you know, <laughs> change narratives and perspectives as, as his did for you. What was it about his story that did that? I think the the fact that my family never said anything about this, hmm. the fact that I grew up in a very loving, a very supportive family, the fact that I never grew up with my language, but I did know I was, you know, Cree and, and Soto while I was growing up in the north end of Winnipeg. And I think what, what really um, struck me was the courage and tenacity and the fact that we needed to, at that moment in time, to wake up Canada. Mm. There were certain realities of our Canadian history that I didn't read about and I didn't know about when I was going into public schools in Winnipeg in the, in the 70s and 80s. I started to question 
uh, certain realities that, that I lived through with my mother. She never called racism racism. She called it uh, ignorance. And so when we weren't served in, in, in restaurants, when we weren't um, allowed to buy meat at the store in, in downtown Winnipeg, my mother was not one to sort of back away. She was, also, she was very tenacious herself. And mm. uh, I think that also fed into this idea that art and storytelling is, is an opportunity for us to decolonize our uh, relationships to what we're privileged with. What does that you know? mean? Can you, can you expand on that idea? Well, I mean, people have a lot of different definitions of what, uh, what decolonization is. But in the time for me, it was to like to do creatively, because as I was, I've always been an artist, grew up with songs in, in, in the ceremonies and grew up with, with stories as I was as a, as a child. But to be creatively, uh, critically curious about what we hold as true uh, within this Canadian fabric of its institutions, systems, mm-hmm. and structures, you know, creatively curious enough for our own personal values and how we hold different other cultures, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in my case was to look at, you know, the history of, uh, of what happened to my people in the residential school. These systems that um, when you look at them with an open heart and an open mind, you know, sometimes we get pushed to the borders of our mm-hmm. of our uh, moral code mm-hmm. in terms of how we see our history. You know, like we're looked mm-hmm. at as a very incredible country, and and we are. I love Canada, but at the same time, do you know that there are over seventy Indian reservations in Canada that doesn't have clean drinking water? I did not. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, these kind of realities that I started to explore in, in the kind of art that I was practicing, mm-hmm. a lot of communities, even in Manitoba, have to come, still have to come down to, to, to Winnipeg to go to public school because there isn't um, that happening there. Mm-hmm. Decolonization is, is, is looking at the systems of, of the Canadian sphere of services that we have and to, to assess your place within it. You know, scholars and educators and social activists have said that in order for reconciliation to happen, we all need to decolonize. Hmm. And what does that look like? And, and for me, it always started with asking the questions. You know, do you know whose land you're on? Do you know whose land, you know, uh, whose mm-hmm. land you're on? Do you know where your home is? Whose land are you on? Here on the Coast Salish ter- territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh that make up Vancouver. I have established a relationship with, with many of, of their citizens to ap- ask permission uh, to do the work that I do. So there's a, there, there, for my decolonial process, it was for me to do that and to acknowledge that. And usually when I go back home, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, Winnipeg is in the Treaty 1 territory. You know, so it's, it's you know, when I, I ask people questions about that, it's, it's, it's about seeing history and seeing the history of Indigenous people that people, you know, our history books don't really write a lot of good things about um, Indigenous people. But how they see our people today. There's so many different realities that are happening. And 
I think that was one of the, the, the greatest things about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, was the, how that opened the doors for Canadians to sort of see what, what uh, we've experienced in, in um, 153 years of, of Canada being Canada. This, this work, I always call the, you know, the work that I, that I do is about, um, is, uh, I call it resilience art, and it's a mm. focus, you know, in, in what you were talking about earlier was um, the work that I did with Indigenous women living in single room occupancies in the mm. downtown east side. And it's, a, for those listening, we'll post a video, a link to this video. It's a, it's a powerful five-minute video on the site, man. Urban Inc. Stories Transform, and it's it's really voices of women who are living in the downtown east side. And I lived in Vancouver for five years. It's, um, how would you describe it, Renai, a, a, a place where a lot of people struggle with substance abuse and homelessness who are living in tight proximity? Many of the people that I um, work with in the downtown east side have been disenfranchised. Hmm have um, had to deal with um, the impacts of residential school, whether they themselves, because the last residential school didn't close down until 1997. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff has impacted them. Right. So the work that I do in in storytelling is about self-care. In in an interesting way to say, you know, what's your language? Where, where's your homelands? And, And my, my, the premise of the work that I did with the, the BSRO Indigenous Women's Project was was this home within, home within the downtown east side, hmm. and home within the homelands in which you come from. And for many, there are many stories that are interwoven in what that represents for these women. And if you when you look at the video, you'll you'll have a sense of, of what I mean by that. And when you describe this as resilience art, tell me what you mean by that. Um, it's a focus on our Indigenous cultural practices, our languages, our worldview in the face of the colonial forces that have okay. impacted our lives. So for us, when we, look, when we talk about reconciliation, you know, and, and of course with the Canadian in, in the final report in 2015 for the TRC and, and the 94 calls to action that came out of that final report uh, with uh, uh, Senator Marie Sinclair uh, in the helm of that, the women and the idea of reconciliation was, wasn't so much about them and Canada. It was them reconciling with their own families Mm. because many of them haven't lived in their communities because of the residential schools or being in in foster care there has been a lot of social impacts and so the the work that i do is to basically celebrate that we all are are the leaders of our own lived experience Mm. and in what way shape that we take to, to tell the stories of our own resilience in who we are today. The, the idea of reconciliation is to, re- to reconcile not only with your own home community, but also with your family. And, and in that process, that then becomes the decolonial uh, process of uh, asking questions, you know, mm-hmm. how do we reimagine, you know, the, the, our, our lived experience here? Mm-hmm. Because so many of, like in, in, the, in the media and, and um, all of that, there's a lot of political rhetoric 
mm-hmm. <laughs> of you know uh, self government and, mm-hmm. and uh, challenges of who owns what land in terms of the you know the pipeline uh, mm-hmm. challenge happening up in northern British Columbia here. But my my take is to be nicely and gently and respectfully ob- obsessed with <laughs> our own our own lived experience. Mm. So let's still um, yeah. delve a bit into this process. So um, how do you go about practically helping people like the women you worked with in downtown Eastside, but I know there are many other groups you do work with. Hmm. How do you help them tell their stories? I, I, I'd love to know, do you, do you go in with a process? Do you have principles? Like what's your, what's your approach? Part of our uh, is a circle sharing is to do, um, you know, we have a, a circle where everyone just shares how their day is going. Okay. We have exercises that we build trust in terms of mm-hmm. uh, some of those, uh, uh, Augusto Boel, as I mentioned before, uh, some of his exercises that help support the dramaturgy of the stories that mm-hmm. are going to be shared. Like what, I mean, would the trust, I, what would an exercise be, for example? I mean, if, if someone was in the room, what might they experience with you? Let's say I'm, I'm thinking vocally, we do some stuff um, physically where we um, are in a circle and, and um, throwing, you know, clapping our hands and, and mm-hmm. calling out to a person across the room so that we get to begin to, to know the people that are in the room and, and creating uh, songs in the moment. You know, whether it turns into a song, we don't know. So, so one of the, the, the work that comes out of Gusto Boel is these things called the frozen tableaus. Say, for instance, someone's talking about not wanting to go home, not feeling welcome there. And it's like, okay, let's build a tableau. Let's build a frozen picture. If you had to take a picture hmm. of, of the people, that person will pick people in the room to put them in different positions and they don't tell us what the image is. And that's the whole idea of, of collaborative storytelling is that they go up and they create a, a frozen tableau of a situation of, of heightened emotional challenges. So this might be like if I was uncomfortable to go home, I might put my parents in the, in the tableau and my siblings and, and myself. Is that? Yes. Then, okay. But you would direct it. You I would direct, direct it. it. Okay. You would put your, you would pick the people in the room to be your parents, but you don't tell us what the story is. Hmm. You and go then, just in your own head. You're saying this moment was really hard for me. This is why I'm not going home because, you know, my parents were there, my siblings were there and I was standing at the door leaving. So I need them in the room. So then what we do at that, at that moment uh, in that ex- experience is um, I would say, okay, Bart, um, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bang on my drum three times and we're going to move that image. And every person there is intelligent, is capable of understanding what that story is, even though they don't know what it is for you personally. But because of our own human condition, they're like, okay, someone's standing at the, he looks like he's leaving. He's looking over his shoulder. Um, one of the kids looks like he's crying over there. And I guess I must be some, I don't know who I am, but I'm going to move like this. So each of those four characters, five characters, because you put yourself in it as well, um, move the tableau in one solid movement. 
in, and then mm -hmm. I bang the drum again. And the idea is that it, we get three movements as to getting to what Bart wants. What do you want? Mm. None of the people know it, right? Mm. Maybe you come back in the room because that's what you want. Maybe you actually do leave. You know, we don't know. And then what it is in that experience is that the individuals begin to understand that, that even though they don't know your personal story of what that is, they inform it within their own lived experience. And I think that's where the conversations begin in having individuals say, well, when he put me in this position where my hands were on my face, I, I felt like I was crying. So, and he looked like he was leaving and I, I guess I was sad. And for me, that reminded me of this part of my story. Right. So we don't know, we don't know, but all of us um, are, are the experts of our own lives. You know, we all have our own challenges. We have all, we have our own, our hopes and our dreams. Mm -hmm. And we also have those things we don't want to talk about. Right. And I think that in this work, that's where we come up to the, the gray areas of our moral code. Sometimes in our attitudes and our behaviors, we don't want to see something. But sometimes we have to go into that, the gray areas right. of our moral code in order to see it clearly. And in this process of, of creating story, mm -hmm. uh, this, these exercises that I, I call dramaturgy, that, that these exercises that the collective of individuals in the room understand it. So when all these women for instance, with the SRO project, they all have experienced homelessness. Right. They all have experienced uh, challenges in the colonial uh, residential schools, 60s scoop, you, you know, mm -hmm. uh, challenges within the health system, all of those things. So they all had a, a grounding in, in what the stories that each of them were telling each other. And through the, the dramaturgy of these, these frozen tableaus, they created a story collectively. Uh, and ah. uh, of, of poems, of songs, of movement, and of theater. What, what's powerful about this to me, I mean, is we know storytelling is tremendously powerful because it connects you on a human level, makes you vulnerable. But I've never, I've never heard, and I think you're describing it, this uh, Augusto Boyle's form theater, this idea of you're experiencing the story, you know, with these tableaus. That, and that, would, to me, is even more powerful because no one's telling you what to think or feel. You're just experiencing it and almost having to be fully invested and present to understand what you would be feeling if you were in that story. Absolutely. And I think that's what's the, the, is the jewel in the work of, of, of the forum theater. And even though in this particular situation with the indigenous women's project, we didn't do forum theater, but I utilized the dramaturgical exercises like the frozen tableaus to help the women tell their story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a facilitator, some people are telling the same story. So then it's like, okay, we're going to amalgamate that. And we understand mm -hmm. that. And, and we talk about what that is. And so what happens at the end of the day is that the story that's created by the women is owned by the women, not one person's personal story mm -hmm. It's not going to be, oh, Sarah's story is that part over there. Right. But what it is is that it becomes a symbol of, of the collaborative experience of how these women, in this particular case, experienced homelessness, 
home within themselves, home in the downtown east side, and the and home of their of their homelands where they came from. Um, your job is to create trust by asking these questions, by helping people understand not only what story do they want to tell, but what's the kind of larger life experience and, and growth that you can have from it. I, I wonder just to bring it to something that I think is on many people's minds who I talk to uh, in the corporate world right now, in the world of, of business and government. You know, as, as you know, this is a unique moment in time, you know, what started with COVID and then um, came quickly after is kind of a growing global awareness of the systemic racism that exists in our world. Mm. Uh, initially, uh, started with the anti-black racist protests that are still going. Here we are in August. Yeah. So Im- impressive uh, in the U.S. in response to the multiple deaths by police, uh, killings by police of, of black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think it was met reflexively here in Canada with, well, you know, that's the U.S. And, and stories coming out and saying, no, hold on, that's not in the U.S. And I know... Uh, indigenous people have spoken up and loudly and about racism they face um, from you know the RCMP and other institutions. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people are wondering how did we create, we being people who are not uh, in, for example, um, of indigenous background, how do we listen? How do we uh, hear? How do we build trust uh, in this time when it's important to hear new voices? What advice would you have for those who who are ready to hear but may not know how to go about doing it that's that's a great question bart and i wish it was a (laughs) simple answer i really wish it was just (laughs) if there was we probably wouldn't need to have a have a whole podcast (laughs) i know i know i i have to go back to uh uh dylan robinson's uh book he wrote a book called hungry listening uh, I love that title. Uh, yeah, uh, Dylan Robinson is, uh, I believe, he's Stalo from from the Fraser Valley here in, in in British Columbia. How do we decolonize our listening? Mm. What does it mean to 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 decolonize our listening? And it goes back to the value systems that we hold, how we were uh, raised to understand difference to understand religious difference, to, to comprehend social realities that, that you have no idea of, you know? I say that, you know, earlier I said, uh, Bart, that I feel very privileged. I do feel very privileged in the work that I do because I, I, have, uh, I had a very loving childhood. Uh, I was always looked after, a very strong family. My brothers looked after me. I, I mean, I had to leave Winnipeg to get a date. You know, so it's like I was. They weren't letting anyone come by. <laughs> That's right. That's why I moved to Vancouver. And I was still in grade twelve. <laughs> for but, your love life. <laughs> yeah, for my love life. But I mean, I guess it gets down to like um, the pull of the heart. You know, the fuel mm-hmm. that, that feeds our purpose. You know, the meaning. You know that that connects that connects us to this earth, and the power of our of our own cultures and overall the worldview how do we align how do we align ourselves to the idealized way of wanting to live we all want clean water we mm-hmm. all want to have a safe community 
We all want to have a, a, a healthy system in, uh, of, of me- medical system, mm-hmm. you know? And, and for a lot of people, that is so true. How do you deal with when someone says, I did not get served at the hospital, such and such hospital, because mm-hmm. I, I was having um, a diabetic attack and they thought I was drunk. <laughs> These are, this, is, this is real. This is a, the, the gentleman in the hospital in, in, in Winnipeg um, died, indigenous wow. man. How do we how do we kind of contend with that? Is that really true that First Nations people make up our jail system? It, there must be something they they must you know and and the attitude that we have is well you know that we you know they don't work they 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 can't hold jobs down you know they they you know they're they're not contributing to society. But when you understand the historical analysis the, the world and how the imposition of those that are privileged see, you know, my people. How do we change that? And, and, and it goes back to, to when individuals get pushed to the borders of their moral, and again, I'm saying this again, uh, the, the, their, their moral code. Mm-hmm. What is the questions that you ask yourself in, in that place that isn't stable? Hmm. How do you deal with with the un, being unsettled when you are um, faced with you know seeing someone homeless? How do you deal with any time that we see any sort of social realities in our community, homelessness, um, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, mental illness, um, and and we see individuals that have that. Where do you sit on that? Where do you sit in, in seeing that? How do you listen? How do you listen to that place of unsettlement? And I think that's the, the place of change. Right. Um, because when the ground becomes unstable and our, our values and our morals don't, don't support us anymore, what does? And so and it I sounds think- like that when you, it's being maybe as a first step is... <laughs> Be willing to sit and listen in that place of discomfort to, yeah. to stories that you might not have listened to otherwise yes. and to come with that, that curiosity and non-judgmental perspective that you bring to your work in resilience art, informed theater, to just go and listen. And, and how do you open yourself to listening? Hmm. You know, really, truly. It's hard. <laughs> it's certainly hard. <laughs> To, you know, to squeeze it, touch. It, it is it is hard to listen without the preconceived notion of what you're going to say after they're it's done. <laughs> I find you know that's why I like having this podcast because it's it's kind of enforced listening time for me. You know, I I, I find people who who I want to talk to and then just go in and kind of be open to where it heads. But I'll confess that outside of this, it's challenging. You know, I focus on what am I going to do today? What do I have to get done? And so this allows me that structure to talk to some people, but it's, it's only a small part. And I think it really speaks to the, the difficulty we have in being open and then also connecting with people whose stories might challenge us and might provoke us because we often, 
you know, end up talking to the same people uh, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we have the rote thing that we say yes. <laughs> in, in, in conflict. And, and sometimes not knowing what to say is the greatest gift that you can give <laughs> someone. I don't know. I, I have to process. I have to, I have to go away and process what you're saying. It's, it's making me feel a whole bunch of things, mm. you know? So when I, when I work with individuals that are living in the margins of society, there's a lot of silence mm. and it's okay. And I think that when we do the work of creating story, it's about what potential is that the, the offer in the beginning of, of the time we spend together is just a, a, a little finger touching, you know, the center of the table. And then at the end of it, it's like, okay, I, ha- I, I feel honored to say that I've earned a trust of these mm-hmm. women to help them with their stories because the space I've given them to tell those stories, I'm, I'm not the expert in it. Mm-hmm. I'm simply the facilitator to ask the questions to see what that is. And always the bottom line in all the work that I've created is how do I make hope actionable? And what is it that I do that will allow the individuals to be who they are, to align their mind and their heart and their, their gut to tell the story that, that I think when we get those three things going together, that's leadership. That's a powerful way to bring this to a close. I, I feel that you know, what you said when you kind of put that finger on the table, that's just the start. I feel that this, this conversation has just been the finger on the table. And you know, what I'm, what I'm taking away is it's so fascinating, you know, that you're, you're someone who's a professional storyteller. You, you tell stories, you help others tell their stories. And what have we talked about? We've talked about listening, trust, openness, being willing to sit in silence. I mean, none of these are about, you know, actually forming, shaping, or telling a story. And yet what I'm taking away is they're all the most important components of, of doing that. So it's, um, it's powerful. So you've given me a lot to think about. Wow, thank you. I appreciate it. If people want to connect with you or want to learn more about what you do, I know we'll post some of the links that you sent to me. I'm on, on LinkedIn. I'm on, um, uh, where am I on? I, I think have, you're on Twitter uh, too. <laughs> on Twitter too, yeah. I'm really bad at Twitter, but I, I try to. Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not to, I'm not even on Instagram. Like, I don't even Neither know. am I. <laughs> that thing. Well, this is this has been so valuable. I really, um, it's really a, a neat perspective you bring, um, and I, I just I appreciate you sharing it with me. Right on. Thanks a lot, Bart. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Renai Morrison, someone who just does such powerful work on storytelling. There's a lot that we can take away from that uh, as we look to tell stories in our own life. And, and to help others do the same. Uh, so, yeah, tremendously powerful. I encourage you to check the notes in the um, podcast episode for links to her content that she referenced uh, and which provides uh, additional perspective and some great videos there. You can see her in action. 
Um, so yeah, great conversation. As I said in the opening, we turn to our last episode of the Inspire Podcast Season 2 next time. And it's one I recorded in the before time with uh, Gabe Gonda. And Gabe is an executive at The Globe and Mail, a paper I read closely. I still get the physical paper every day. And uh, Gabe comes because I think journalism with integrity has never been more important in the world that we live in. And I believe that news organizations that are committed to investing in real journalism matter. And Gabe is someone who started as a reporter. He worked his way up to an editor and then really kind of found his calling in uh, this new era of digital commerce for the paper. And so he joins me to talk about his own conversion, manner <laughs> speaking, and how he seeks to convert others to the cause. So it's a great conversation. It'll be the last of the season. Look forward to having you back on the Inspire podcast. Take care and may all your conversations be inspiring.